0: Welcome into the brand new first ever episode of the best of Broadway podcast, the week four edition. If you don't know who I am, I'm Easton Freeze. I wear a lot of hats around here. I'm the director of published content at BroadwaySportsMedia.com. We work with the 440 Podcast Network, of course. I am the host of the Hot Read Podcast here on the Broadway Sports Media Podcast Network, as well as the producer of The Mike Herndon Show each and every week on broadwaysportsmedia.com. I'm also a senior Titans contributor for Broadway Sports Media. And we have this great new podcast for you that I'm so excited to introduce to you. Whether you missed one of our shows during the week or you just want a pregame review of everything that you need to know going in to the Titans game each and every weekend on Saturday mornings, this podcast will be available on the podcast feed of all of our flagship podcasts, the Hot Read Podcast, Football and Other F-Words, Second in Victory, the Music City Audible. Everywhere you get Broadway Sports Media and 440 Podcasts, you are going to find this show. It's a bonus episode, and it's a distillation of all of the very best content we had to offer to you from that week. So whether you're just looking for something to listen to before the game, or if you missed something from the week that you wanted to get catch- catch up on this is the place to do it again each and every week on Saturday today we've got a great slate of highlights for you first we've got Zach Lyons and Mike Herndon evaluating where Caleb Farley and Conquo are so far this season on the football and other f-words podcast and then yours truly has James Foster of A to Z film room stop by on the hot read podcast to discuss how the Titans and the Colts looked on tape in week three and then finally Justin Mello and Justin Graver From the Music City Audible podcast, have Zach Hicks of the Locked on Colts podcast join the show to talk about the Titans at the Colts ahead of their week four matchup. I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, let's get into the best of Broadway.
1: Okay, Mike, snap counts. We're talking Chig and we're talking Caleb Farley. One offense player, one defense player. I am so confused about what this team, what this team needs to see out of these players over players like uh, I mean, when you have Kyle Phillips out, great time to play Chigakonku. When you have, you know, struggling to find a three cornerback rotation, you go to your number one. Uh, cornerback, or go to your number first-round draft pick, easy for me to say, first-round draft pick, Caleb Farley, who is 6'2", and match him up on a 6'4", wide receiver, instead of letting a 5'11", loser, you just signed off a practice, off a practice squad, on Wednesday, on a short week, be on an island with this guy, and and he's physically outmatched in both athleticism and physical attributes, and there's no way, I just, I got we're gonna get into this, and this is going to, This is not me trying to convince you of of that I'm right or wrong. Because so I really don't know what is going on. In the Titans said. So this is like me doing discovery. I'm investigating this murder of Caleb Farley's career and trying to figure out what went wrong. What's the motive by the Titans and all this stuff? Because I don't know. Like I spent the majority of the time talking with Braden on Monday on a football show, which is 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, when we were live from the pharmacy. I, I we we couldn't figure out why, because how can you sit there and say it's about trust and execution and knowing the playbook, but then put a guy that doesn't know your playbook and put him out there on an island after four days of trying to learn your playbook? So that to me just feels like it's a load of crap. And then I go and look at Christian Fulton's stats today, and I go and look at Jeffrey Okuda's stats over their first year, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe there's hope that Caleb Farley is just – they, they're working through something with him mentally and emotionally outside of what the playbook entails. So I ask you, Mike, do you want to go with Chig first or Caleb Farley first?
2: Um, let's go with Chig first because I think Farley is more – in-depth discussion like i'll say this for chig i I would like to see them get him the ball more because frankly i think he's good with the ball in his hands um and i think the way the titans used johnny smith when he was a rookie back in what was it 2017 it would have been um was really smart they they got him on some tight end screens they let him uh catch the ball in the flat sometimes kind of be the the third uh, check down read on, on some like three level concepts and things like that. Just any opportunity to get him the ball with the ability to run after the catch. And, you know, I'm, I'm not totally sure if Chig will be as good after the catch as John who was John who was pretty sp- uh, special in that regard, excuse me. Um, but it, Chig, that was one of his strengths on uh, on tape at Maryland. And I think that's something that I would like to see them do more Look, I mean, they still they need to find a way to get the ball to Traylon Burks' hands. They need to find a way to get the ball into like Robert Woods uh showing some major flashes these last couple weeks of of being like back to being the guy that he was with the Rams, uh, is very positive and they need to continue to feed that. But there's gotta be room in this offense for Chickakonqua to get two or three touches a game. Like I I'm not saying he needs to be a huge focal point on offense, but more than what he has been, um, Because, frankly, I mean, we heard all the buzz all throughout training camp of getting all these touchdowns. He's, you know, being – he's super effective. He's catching the ball all the time. He's got great hands. And they've only given him the ball
1: twice, right? Have they – did he get targeted at all in the uh, Bills game?
2: I don't think so. I can't remember any uh, targets for him. So it's – it hasn't been much. Um, Yeah, he's got – yeah, he's got one target. Yeah, officially one made.
1: target. And that and was one- and, and that was the first down catch. And then he also got the handoff. I this is this is this ties into the Caleb Farley thing with me because we 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 hear one thing, but we see something else in action from this staff. So we hear that with Caleb Farley, it's essentially he can't be trusted. You know, he kind of had a, a you know a lukewarm average camp with a lot of ups and downs, and he has ups and downs in the game. But all you heard all offseason is that yeah, Chig's gonna have to work on his blocking, but he's explosive, he's making plays, he's getting touchdowns, he's earned the trust of Ryan Tannehill, which to me is the most important person to earn your trust with if you're trying to be on offense. And so, like, the, these two things don't make sense. It doesn't jive with me. So I don't understand why with Chig's athleticism that he only played nine snaps. That's ridiculous. And to only have one target? And and so if you're playing nine snaps and you're trying to maximize those snaps, you know, I'm looking at it right here on PFF. And so those nine snaps, the five of them were for run blocking. And four of them were for him going out and doing a route. That's not enough route running for a guy like Chica in my mind.
2: I agree. And then I, I know this will really, uh, uh, you'll really like this. Kevin Rader outsnapped him uh, 15 to yeah. nine. I even and forgot was on
1: the team. When I read it, I was like, oh, I forgot they signed this guy. And he's, you know, getting all these snaps
2: fresh off the Steelers practice squad as well. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, let me ask I you say, I,
1: look, We're just real quick, I, because this would have been the perfect opportunity to showcase Chigakonkwo with no Kyle Phillips. You could use him to mitigate some of that instead. It's Cody Hollister. It's, you know, it's, you know, Jeff Swaim. It's, you know, Kevin Raider. It's these guys... I I don't understand if Jeff Swaim's going out for a route, why can't in that instance Chig Chip and go out for a route.
2: Yeah, it, and that's the thing. I I kind of I, I always figured we would see a good amount of Swaim and Hooper together in in, you know, 12 personnel just because Swaim is is their best blocking tight end and I know he's which not means, a great Which means which means none of them are good by the way. Right, it it <laughs> does. But and to be fair, like I think most NFL tight ends at this point are pretty bad blockers because you just, it's not something that like gets developed very well to me. Um, it, so I think, I think Swame is the best of the bad blocking Titans uh, tight ends. So I can get Swame getting, uh, getting a good amount of snaps, but I figured we'd see Swame and Hooper uh, for some early down 12 personnel stuff. But then I thought we'd see, some Hooper Chig uh, snaps as well, where you get two guys who are, you know, both are not really, you know, great run blockers. I, I think they're subpar overall run blockers, but they're at least bigger bodies, and see if the defense will match up with uh, with those guys being on the field as as tight ends and give you some advantages in the passing game because I, I think both Chig and Hooper can beat you know your average linebacker in in man coverage and maybe maybe they need chig to prove it uh a little bit more than than what he has to this point but i yeah hooper hooper and chig snaps where they're together on the field i I feel like is something that this team needs to find at some point and use because that is clearly the most talented uh pass catching set of tight ends that you could have on the field together and and if they're at least credible uh blockers which I, I don't think either one of those are terrible run blockers uh they're not Ferkser, uh, for example but um get them on the field see see if you can get some matchups with those guys because they're both good dynamic pass catching type tight ends. so I, i'd like to see a little bit more of that combination and you know I don't mind the Swaim snaps. I really don't. And Raider, frankly, was really. I, I thought he was pretty impressive as a blocker. Um, oh, don't this start this,
1: dude. Don't do this to me, Mike. <laughs> don't, don't, don't fucking, he's, don't fucking take me down this road. <laughs>
2: he's he's gonna play more next week. I'd almost bet it. Oh um,
1: my god. Because oh.
2: uh, yeah, he was pretty good.
1: Oh, I can't believe you did that to me.
2: Listen, <laughs> if if you need another lumbering white tight end, yeah. the, the Titans are going to find one.
1: Hey, you, you're available, right? I mean, I on am. Sundays you can go out there and do it. My this this Caleb Farley things just got me all confused because I I I get and I put out in a tweet. It doesn't matter to me whether he can't be worse than what Terrence Mitchell was. Now I'm not saying that he's great. And I'm not saying that he's he could even be better than Terrence Mitchell. He may be the same, but even if he's the same as Terrence Mitchell and he allowed the same plays and the same amount of yards, isn't getting the snaps important for this for this kid? I don't understand because I look at Christian Fulton, who wasn't very good his first year and his first seven games, and if you take his snaps and you take uh, Caleb Farley snaps if so far through three games, and you kind of extrapolated all the stats, did all that shit, all the calculations and stuff, they're pretty much on the same path of a, a, a starting career because really this is injuries and everything. This is really Caleb Farley's start to his career. And I look at Jeffrey Okuda, who struggled with injuries his first year, and then missed all of last, last season after one one of uh, the first week, and he was awful when he played. I mean, you're talking about a guy who played like, I think, eight or nine games and was on pace to allow 1,200 to 1,300 yards. So and Farley's not as bad as that. So I don't understand why they are they are forcing Caleb Farley to sit on the sidelines in fear of messing something up when you have a guy that is messing up way worse than anything that Caleb Farley's done in one game.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's because they mess up in different ways. Like Terrence Mitchell was really, really atrocious in this game, like really bad, but he was not out of position is the thing. And and I think that may be uh, something that they steer like too extreme uh, on in the Farley, because he's had a few instances that I've noticed um, in in the first two games of busted coverages. Obviously, uh, the one that stands out the most is that that Bill's play where Stephon Diggs, they were in man-to-man, and for some reason, he just left Stephon Diggs and covered the flat, which the linebacker already had the flat. Um, and he was just kind of standing there in the middle of nowhere, and Diggs was running around wide open in the end zone. Eventually, catches the touchdown. Pass Who was the other defender
1: on. that was back there? Because there was another defender back there behind Caleb Farley over to the. If you're looking at the TV screen, looking at over to the right,
2: uh, I'm not sure because Diggs started at the left on that yeah. play and then ended up all the way back to the like middle, almost like to the right side of the field. And Farley just didn't run with him, and, right. and I, you know I don't know if that was. You know, it's it's, sure it's possible that maybe they were supposed to pass that off somehow or whatever. But Well, I think he was playing
1: the Isaiah, because usually Isaiah McKenzie gets that that ball in that particular instance. And for whatever reason, uh, I mean, Josh Allen made a tremendous throw to Stefan Diggs, who made it easy for him because he's wide open. So I think that he kind of like bit a little too hard on a play that they had saw be run before. Yeah, but. I, I get what you're saying. He didn't cover his, he left Stefan Diggs, who is his man, wide open.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, it is a James Foster Friday, and you know what that means? Our buddy James Foster is here with us to discuss the Titans in week three and then look ahead to week four. James, how's it going? I'm feeling great. How you doing? Doing great. Let's talk about the Titans in week three before we look ahead to this week's game. Obviously got their first win of the year, looked really great for a half, looked not so great for a half. When you went and looked at the tape from this game, was there a significant change in approach um, from the Titans' game plan standpoint that you saw as opposed to their first two weeks that led to this win or do you think that it was just a matter of being a better team playing better yeah so when you watch the when i watch the broadcast um
3: the great thing about my analysis being almost entirely film focused is that i can't really have takes until like tuesday or wednesday so <laughs> yeah. love that but um you know when you watch the broadcast it's like man this defense is soft. This is reminding me of uh, 2020 defense. Right. But when I watched the tape, so the Titans played Sports Info Solutions charted them as playing 13 snaps of cover two. Um, I charted them with 17. Either of those are a Mike Vrabel record. Um, The most that he's played before that was 12 in a single game. And it was they ran when they weren't running cover two, they were running a ton of cover to man. Um, and basically what it was is every, every single coverage they were playing was too high. And on Devonte Adams side, they would be playing man coverage. And then um, they would have a cone, what's called a cone check to his side, which means that the safety um, brackets him from the inside and the, the corner that's on, that's manned up on Devonte Adams uh, plays really aggressive press coverage with outside leverage. And so you're basically getting a double team on Devonte Adams. And then on the other side, away from Devonte Adams, they would just play like cover two zone, um, just like spot drop. And so when you're devoting two players to one player, that's giving you a numbers disadvantage in other places. And so that's why you saw so many big plays Uh, you know also terrence or not i keep calling terrence mitchell uh lonnie who got cooked who kept getting cooked terrence mitchell and lonnie johnson are uh interchangeable in my mind
0: yes who which of them got it was it was was terrence mitchell that was getting cooked all game yeah terrence mitchell didn't help the cause but um they were
3: making a conscious choice to say all right we're gonna we're going to be kind of weak on this one side of the field, but we're not going to get beat by Devontae Adams. And they didn't. And, um, you know, I think they did a great job with that defensively. Um, offensively, though, I, you know, it was really the same story that we've seen um, the first, you know, through the first three games, where it's like whatever they're doing in the week, you know, in the days leading up to the game, as far as, um, you know, I think they only, don't they, don't they only script like the first eight plays or first 10 plays? I don't think they do the first 15.
0: Yeah. They 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 don't. It's it's a small number. Like
3: whatever they script and, um, whatever they, whatever philosophy they kind of craft going into the game, they do a great job of that in the first half. And then they pretty much abandon it in the second half. So, um, you know, if you look at like the the amount of early runs that they call mm-hmm. first half versus second half, I don't have the numbers with me, but I remember looking that up and there was a huge disparity there. Um, and, you know, just in general, the play calling is a lot less creative. I did a video kind of detailing that um, basically just breaking down a lot of um, a lot of. What's his name? Todd Downing's uh, play calls in the Buffalo game. And like the first couple drives, you know, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. And then, you know, uh, there's a lot of just kind of little stuff that offensive coordinators need to manage. Like having, you know, who or, what side of the formation are you lining the tight end up on? Um, my choice would be to have it on Dennis Daly's side as he tries to block Von Miller. Um, but that's just mm. me, you know. So stuff like that 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 Todd Downing is not great at, um, it kind of just pops up throughout the game. They, you know he he did actually do a good job of moving the pocket a lot to uh, to you know Chandler Jones and Max Cros- <clears throat> Max Crosby to to keep them from beating them because right um, you know NPF I have a video coming out on him today. I think he's been really impressive. Dennis Daly was he's the worst play i'm not being hyperbolic he's the worst player i've ever individually watched that's a starter um wow and outside of i lied tay crowder linebacker for the giants is the worst player anyways um (laughs) hey this morning so they did a good job of using a lot of uh play action and rollouts uh to to keep Max Crosby and Chandler Jones from being able to pin their ears back and stuff. So that that is one thing that I think they did a better job with. But yeah, you really saw that conservative play calling
0: uh, creep up in the second half again. That's fascinating. So talking to Mike Herndon this week, he actually when he went and watched the film, had a little bit of a different perspective. Okay. He thought the second half woes on offense were just as much, if not more, due to a failure of execution on the part of the players, as opposed to the play calling getting conservative. Now, I think I agree with you that generally the play calling got uninspired, uncreative, really conservative in the second half, but going back and watching some of that film for myself, there was certainly some execution issues in the second half. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Mike is someone who um,
3: if he and I have a, a different opinion, I will always go back and, Reevaluate because um, you know he's usually pretty right. So I'll go back and check that for sure, and just kind of rewatch, um, see where I would place more blame. That is, I don't know. I, I've just I've grown so tired of that argument that we do like yeah. after every game where it's like, you know, the play calling and the execution will both be a disaster. And then we just like debate of like, well, is it on the players <laughs> for not executing or is it on the coaches for putting the players in a bad situation? Maybe and it was everybody. Someone comes yeah. the smartest person in the room comes in and says, no guys, it's on John Robinson for drafting. <laughs> and then someone else says it's on Amy Adams Strunk for, for employing them. This horrible leadership in place. And then someone else says it's on, bud adams ever <laughs> it is grave. this trash franchise to this even trashier city and I then it. yeah you know it, we can just go on and on uh-huh. but um but yeah no i mean i i'm not gonna say that like i can remember specific individual plays where there's execution i can't remember if issues i can't remember first half or second half but um yeah i don't know it's just in all seriousness, they're like evaluating a, an offensive coordinator. You need a huge sample size. At least I do like, right. Just, you know, sitting there and, and evaluating every individual play, 80% of any offensive coordinators play calls in a given game are going to be just like standard, you know, and I can't sit here and say "Oh, this specific time that they ran outside zone on first down, like that's, that's the problem it's more like over a span of a season, you need to be running on early downs a lot less, you know? Like, so it's, it's more with like larger scale tendencies that a lot of my criticisms come from um, as, you know, as opposed
0: to just like any individual time that I think they should have passed the ball. Let's talk about the Titans offensive line in this game. I remember watching the game live thinking, Oh man, these tackles that we were really concerned about coming into the game, you know, they, they looked better in this game than I thought. And then I watched some of the film and that opinion changed. I thought that they had a kind of rough day personally, um, which isn't all that shocking against two really good pass rushers. What were your thoughts on some individuals on this offensive line and the unit as a whole in this first game and first iteration without Taylor one? Um. Yeah. So I
3: totally agree with that. Uh, just in general, like, I have that experience almost every weekend, where you know you you can't watch an offensive line, a specific offensive lineman on every single play. Right. So it'll be like you know the five snaps that I happen to be watching Nate Davis are going to be what I base my opinion of him on, or if exactly. he gives up some obvious sack. Um. So yeah, to really have an opinion, you you got to grind the film. Unfortunately, um, I, I think. You know, like I said, they moved the pocket around a lot. There weren't a lot of true just drop back pass sets, um, that they were putting their tackles into. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the times that I saw NPF get beat, it was more of just like, you know, they're running play action boot to his side, which Mm -hmm. is actually kind of, which is, you know, technically moving the pocket, but that's a really difficult spot for an offensive tackle to be in. I was li- just listening to Mitchell Schwartz on uh, the athletic football show. And he, that was the first thing he said as far as the most like nerve wracking, most uh, you know, high pressure situations for an offensive tackle is running play action boot to
0: their side. Um, and so why, why and, is that specifically for anybody that might not know?
3: Right. So um, you know, play action boot like is, is, a designed rollout. So you're going to play action, let's just say play action to the left. And then, um, Ryan Tannehill is going to boot out to the right. And then you're mm-hmm. going to have some, uh, some horizontal, like basically they call it a triangle read cause you're doing a levels concept and a high low anyways. Um, and you're moving the pocket. So you're faking run to the left. So you're uh, the offensive lineman is going to be getting into what looks like a reach block. And then the defensive lineman is going to flow. And then after a couple of seconds, uh, the D line is going to realize, Oh, the quarterback has the ball and you're on the move. And it's unpredictable when they're going to uh, read the play and recognize and start, and then they're going to dart in the other direction. And so being right on that play side where the quarterback's rolling Right into the pressure, you don't know if they're calling a run blitz or a stunt or whatever. So you could have guys coming from all different sides, and at a certain point, assignments get thrown out the window, thrown out the window because it's just a jumbled mess. So being like on the play side, being on the play side of uh, boot action is just you know there's a lot of stuff going on, um, and right. so that's that's kind of that's probably not where I would want to put a young player. I also, I mean, I wouldn't want to put Dennis Daly there either. Um, <laughs> either of yeah, these no, players, I, yeah. As far as as far as uh, daily, I agree with you. Um, he had uh, you know, it, from the broadcast, it looked like he had a pretty good game, but um, you know, definitely got beat a lot. Uh, the other thing I'll say with NPF is they were running a lot of uh, slants inside, which is a, a really good way to um, defeat wide zone because mm. you watch any wide zone play the way that you can tell if you're like just getting into watching film or whatever, the way that you can identify outside zone is is, is if every offensive lineman is taking a a wide step in the same direction towards the play side, they're all going to be flowing laterally. And so if you're taking a wide step to the right, but you've got max Crosby slanting inside, that's really difficult because you have to flip your hips around, stick that backside hand out to catch him. That's, tough to do for a rookie on Max Crosby. And so um, that's why you saw him, you know, have pretty low PFF grades, I think, compared to what it seemed like.
0: I want to talk about another thing that is, I think, a a pretty good concept breaker for this Titans team that we saw them employ a lot last week. And that was using Derrick Henry more in the passing game. On the Mike Herndon show that came out last night, Mike and I yesterday did a long film room and took a long look at a couple of the different things that the Titans did with Henry in the passing game and and just how much free room defenses, or this Raiders defense in particular, I suppose, was giving Henry in the middle of the field almost every single time that dump off was there. I wanted to get your take on their utilization of Henry in the passing game, you know, once he gets his hands on the ball and secures the ball, obviously Derek Henry is a dynamic athlete in space and dangerous and can pick up chunk plays in that way. But it also is a way I think to keep defenses honest because they love in my experience, my, my limited experience, watching Titans tape, as opposed to you defenses, just love to play deep on this Titans team because they know generally speaking, they love to hit, these strike plays down the middle of the field um, work off the play action and, and, and take chunks out of a defense with, you know, they're, they limited passing game, but when they do pass the ball, they're looking for those strikes with Henry, you're, you're kind of keeping them honest in that way. To me, it seems, is that kind of the, the formula that you're seeing from them as well?
4: Yeah.
3: I mean, I, I'm going back and looking at uh, Derek Henry's targets, um, from this game, just to see what coverage they're in. I it's almost exclusive. They're almost exclusively throwing these, um, passes to Derrick Henry against cover three, which okay. if so, if, if a team is playing a three deep coverage, that means there's four underneath defenders compared right. with cover two, for example, which would have five underneath defenders, assuming that you're rushing four. And so, um, this is what you I mean this is basically this is how Tom Brady got became the goat is by checking it down to James White Uh um, and you know he would have like 19 catches for 80 yards in a single (laughs) game and they would all go for first downs because teams were just playing so much cover three back then Um, and then but when you get coverages that crowd the middle of the field more those opportunity, like, you know, checking it down becomes a negative play, checking it down becomes a three yard gain. And now you're behind schedule instead of an eight yard gain. Like if you go back, this is actually, if you go back to the Seattle game from last season, Seattle is Week the most two. notorious defense for playing the most cover three. Like yep. that's what Pete Carroll loves to do. And there was that one drive, uh probably like the third or fourth quarter where they were not only playing cover three, but they're playing like off cover three, taking super deep drops and just giving away that 10 yard check down to Derrick Henry every single play. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, anytime that I, I think that honestly getting Derrick Henry involved in the passing game um, has a lot more to do with if the defense is giving you that option, then absolutely do it. Cause he's capable. Um, I mean, he's shown over the last couple of season seasons that he's improved his hands, you know, and he's not the shiftiest guy around the line of scrimmage, but if you get him the ball and like slip screens and stuff, and he can build up some speed, um, I, I'm always in favor of that. But I, I do think that, um, I do think it has a lot more to do with what the defense is
0: giving you. If the Titans continue to utilize Henry or their backs in the passing game in that way, is it going to change the way the defenses approach the Titans offense? Um, Let's see. I don't know. I mean, I think the
3: one thing I would say, the main thing you don't want to do if you're worried about teams running screens is you don't want to blitz a lot. Um, But I, I don't, you know, I'd have to check. I don't haven't noticed the Titans getting blitzed um, any more or less than other teams do. So, yeah, I would I would have to think about that and, you know, see what see what happens. See if there's anything I notice change.
0: Gotcha. Well, let's turn our attention quickly before we get you out of here to the the Colts this week. First divisional matchup for the Titans on the road. Big game against a team that like the Titans has really struggled out of the gate this year. They got their first win last week against the Chiefs. This was the game, as I was making my, my way out of the press box on Sunday, talking to some of the other reporters, just like, I can't wait to go home and watch this Colts game. Because, of course, we're paying attention to the game that we're at. It, when those games in the new window are on top of each other, I'm not getting to pay attention to any other game. But we're following the scores, and that game just seemed like, oh, man, like is this? I was so curious to see what was real and and what was a... a box score scouting myth from this game and going back and watching it, it was kind of what I expected to me. It seemed like a really fraudulent win by the Colts. It seemed like a game that the chiefs blew in 19 different ways. Their special teams were atrocious. Did you get to watch that game at all at all? And, and did you have any takeaways from the Colts in that game? Yeah.
3: Um, I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, anytime that you get gifted field position, like inside the 10 yard line from a a muffed punt. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and it's like a 21 to 14 or seven, whatever the score was low scoring type of game. Um, Yeah. I mean, that obviously has a huge swing. There were individual players on the Colts that I was impressed with. Um, Like who, you know, Stefan Gilmore. Yeah. I, I actually, I went back and watched all the Colts film from this week because they they had just not been a team that i could stomach to watch over the the first couple of weeks um Can't blame you. but yeah stefan gilmore is still like a, a top 10 ish corner wow uh, really you know, a lot of nice plays yeah and i mean I, i've always i thought he played well last season but nobody watched the panthers yep. um you know i think he's still i think he's in that phase of his career how uh, old is he is he? uh, he's in his 30s. He's in that phase okay. where he's good when healthy. Right. And he'll probably be that for a couple years and then kind of, you know, fall off like pretty much every corner does, unfortunately. Right. Um, and, you know, they finally got tight end one Jelani Woods involved. Um <laughs> I'm going to, man, I'm going to have to cheer on him, uh cheer for him from afar for his entire career. He's a, um, he's a
0: red zone goblin so far in his career. Right. Yeah.
3: I do not want Zach Cunningham anywhere on his side of the field. He may not uh, even be on the field this at, week. At this, oh yeah, that's true. I mean, honestly though, David Long, um two gross love options. Him a, love him as a player, but not the guy that I want just like the well, well, Jelani the, Woods, what 6'7, 260 basketball player, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, Jelani Woods and then the last guy I'll say is um Grover Stewart. It, oh interesting uh, at, at nose tackle has been impressive but yeah i mean as a whole like matt ryan man i like even as a uh, somewhat of a colts hater like i fell for the the colts quarterback like um me too preseason hype i mean honestly though because if you watch him from last year it really had nothing to do with colts hype or anything if you watch him from last year like Looks he looked good did, looked pretty good but yeah man he uh i think he might be kind of, kind of cooked at this point
0: well, one last question on that point before we get you out of here and we appreciate your time as always on a Friday. James, this Colts offense, obviously their their passing threats are very limited like the Titans, but I would argue even more so. Matt Ryan has looked like a, a bit of a washed king so far this year and the the offensive line is a real question mark. What do you I mean, do you think it's as simple as Matt Ryan is just his age is catching up with him? He he doesn't have it anymore. And I know it's a small sample size, so this is a projection. Or do you think it has more to do with, with a guy like Matt Ryan? He has to have a clean pocket. He has to have a good offensive line. And this Colts line just is not what it has been the past couple of years.
3: You know, Matt Ryan is not a very mobile quarterback, but he is kind of similar in um, similar to Tom Brady in that he just has outstanding pocket presence and yes. just a great feel for Um, subtle manipulation and like resetting his base and stuff. So he's actually a quarterback that I think can survive to an extent with a bad offensive line. Um, But obviously like any quarterback, I mean, if you're under pressure, when, when a quarterback's under pressure, every statistic just nosedives. So um, there's no quarterback that's going to be great with a bad offensive line. Um, Yeah. I mean, as for the weapons, you've got Michael Pittman, who. I don't like. I don't even know what Michael Pittman is. Um, I think he's honestly. a high-end wide receiver too, but I, I don't think he fits yeah, that I, I starter think, I wide receiver one mold. Um, and then you've got Alec Pierce, who is a jump ball receiver, but hasn't really shown anything more than that. Um, the thing is, though, like if Lonnie Johnson's back there, I don't trust him to win. You know, he made Mac Hollins look like Mike Evans, so <laughs> okay. um, we'll see.
2: they talking about yeah. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. broadway sports media your
5: justin and justin titans podcast show some of it was bad but hopefully you'll, you'll probably piece something together outstanding there's an earthquake in the middle of the podcast unbelievable we're begging for listeners that's all we do we all we got
0: hey titans on three one two three
4: so without further ado let's welcome in our guest Lead analyst for the Horseshoe Huddle, the Fan Nation Colts site, a film guy for Mile High Huddle, and the co-host of the Locked On Colts podcast, Zach Hicks. Welcome to the show. How you doing?
6: Doing good, man. Doing good. I mean, we're feeling pretty good here in Indy after beating the Chiefs this past week. Uh, definitely a better feeling this week than than the previous two weeks with this team.
4: Yeah, same same for the Titans Nation. Um And let's get into it right away, starting there. What are some of your main takeaways? This was a gritty win for this Colts team over what's supposed to be a a dominant Chiefs offense, holding them to 17 points. Were you more impressed with what the Colts did, more unimpressed by how the Chiefs executed, or what are your takeaways there?
6: I would say definitely unimpressed by the Chiefs special teams miscues. Uh, That definitely helped the Colts uh, quite a bit in this one. Uh, You know, the missed field goal, the... Really weird uh, field goal fake there in the fourth quarter. The muffed punt definitely helped the Colts quite a bit in this one. But honestly, I think the game ball has to go to Gus Bradley in this defense, especially when you look at, I mean, a lot of really smart analysts all year saying, oh, Pat Mahomes thrives against cover three and Gus Bradley's still stuck in the old ways of of only running cover three. So on paper, this looked like it was going to be a disaster for the Indianapolis Colts. But uh, Gus Bradley came out, had a really nice game plan. Uh, the pass rush came alive. The the players played well, and, and they held Pat Mahomes to only 17 points. So uh, definitely the game ball goes to the defense. The offense still needs to figure some things out, but uh, the Colts defense definitely carried them to this victory.
5: Zach, I don't really have a question yet. I just want to let it be known that <laughs> even though you're a friend of the pod and you and I go way back, we don't have to pretend like there isn't a rivalry here between the Titans and Colts. And I just want to say for our listeners that that was such a slimy Colts win. Like that was such a typical Colts win. I saw it coming a mile away. Like no one believed me. I said (laughs) the Colts are going to beat the chiefs this weekend. And everyone thought I was insane, but that's how much confidence I have in the Colts being just a dirty, slimy franchise that gets away with wins when they shouldn't.
6: It's definitely a Chris Ballard and Frank Reich thing that uh, I was saying it all week on the podcast that, you know, with this Colts team under these two, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard, they might suck when they have expectations. They might really blow it when there's real expectations or anything like that. But. They thrive being the underdog or being the the team that everybody counted out or oh my gosh you know they had no right being in this game and and they've done it that's why they always start off so slow every single year you know one in four starts one in five starts and then they're a fringe playoff team by the end of the season every single year as well they just love to claw their way out of these holes and and. Do these big upsets? I mean, last year against the Cardinals, when they had half their team out, the Cardinals were a playoff team, and and the Colts were trying to get into that playoff conversation, and they beat the Colts or beat the the Cardinals by nine points with half their team out. It's just what the Colts do uh, with Frank Reich, Chris Ballard, and even though we were very pessimistic on the Locked On Colts podcast this week, we were kind of (laughs) saying it. We were saying at the end of the week, like. You know, this is where they thrive. They've always done this stuff. I mean, they're the only team to hold Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs under 20 points, I think, in, in the last, like, three years. Wow. <laughs> the only team to do it, and they've done it twice.
5: <laughs> A That's cockroach crazy. that refuses to die. The Indianapolis Colts, ladies and gentlemen. And Graver, that underdog theme sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, the Titans, I mean, it feels like the Titans function the same way, and, they, yep. you know, the whole conversation around the Titans going into last week was the same pessimism. Like, Melo and I both, picked the Raiders to win. It was like doom and gloom central. And now both teams get a much needed win. I'm just so curious about how this game even like ended in a Colts win. When you just look at the box score, because yep. you can't really learn too much just from looking at box scores. But when the Colts average 3.8 yards per play and somehow come away with the win, Over it really the
5: chiefs. can you imagine averaging <laughs> 3.8 yards per play against the Patrick Mahomes led Kansas city chiefs and winning that football game. Yep.
4: So how did this come to be? How did this win shape up for the for the Colts?
5: Again, it really was
6: uh the defense limiting big plays and getting pressure on Pat Mahomes. So the defense, I mean, a lot of credit to the Colts' defense. Uh, and then on top of it, the Chiefs again just their their offense, their the their special team miscues were so bad. I mean, Game the most swinging. fun yeah, the muff punk gave the Colts seven points. Their two field goal flubs in the fourth quarter lost six points for them. Right. So I mean that's a thirteen-point swing right there. Now I'm not saying that the Colts didn't gift the Chiefs offense points. I mean the the Chiefs scored seventeen points in this game, and fourteen of their seventeen came off of really short fields off of Colts turnovers. So the I mean the Colts defense played winning football and they deserved to win with how well their defense played, but before I say anything confident about the Colts going forward, their offensive line needs to improve because I mean, we're looking at the most, the highest paid offensive line in football and they're playing like garbage right now. And and I really don't think you can say any, like Matt Ryan has not been as good as we expected, but it's hard to really have an evaluation with how bad this offensive line's been. Jonathan Taylor isn't doing absurd things, but again, the offensive line is, is the big issue. So I really think this Colts team is close to being good. Uh, and this this last week was really something that showed that. But uh, yeah, this offensive line right now is the big thing holding the back. And, and you know, before the season, I would have been terrified of this Titans matchup. I still am terrified of of, of Simmons and, and Autry, obviously. But obviously with your guys injuries to Harold Landry and I think Bud Dupree's been a little banged up, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So with those injuries, I'm a little more confident. But still, this Colts offensive line is just not been good. And that's where the Titans can definitely feast this week.
5: Yeah. Building on the offense in general, Zach, not just the offensive line, but I'd like to talk about Matt Ryan a little bit, right? Just kind of want to get your early impressions on him. Like when when they traded for him, it felt like the perception around at least national media was he's going to make the Colts a super bowl contender, right? Like the, the expectations were fairly sizable coming in and myself, Graver and most of Titans nation didn't really believe that was going to be the case. But of course, With it being the Colts, you know, there's always a little sense of, well, maybe we're being biased. Maybe we're underrating Matt Ryan. Maybe we're underrating the Colts. I don't think Matt Ryan's been very good so far, sort of maybe confirming our bias so far. But what is your early impression of Matt Ryan through three contests?
6: Yeah, just just to address the Super Bowl stuff, you know, this might sound a little like hindsight bias. I, I kind of thought he was going to be good enough to get them. Into the playoffs and then obviously go from there. And I think that's you know Phil people might. always yeah people always say like oh you want to have the star quarterback so you can make Super Bowl runs, but it's like look just get into the playoffs and you always have a chance. Now it hasn't worked for the Titans the last couple of years, but they've always had a chance because they've been in the playoff. Went to the AFC like
5: Championship game exactly, too, right?
6: Exactly, exactly. So I thought he was kind of going to be that for the Colts, maybe like around the Philip Rivers season in 2020, maybe a little bit better because I thought Ryan has a little more juice uh, to him than Philip Rivers did, but honestly yeah he he has been a little disappointing but it really it's hard to put a firm evaluation on him right now because this offensive line has been just so so bad now Matt Ryan has made mistakes you know he's he's had a fumble issue I mean there was uh both fumbles that he lost in this past game were were definitely on him he should have recognized those blitzes coming and should have protected the ball uh but it, it really is hard to evaluate him right now I mean he this whole line is so bad. I really, I know I have to keep saying it. This whole line is just so, so bad. Like there were, there were free rushers coming at him all game long. And I guess the one positive, the real big positive thing I can say about Matt Ryan is, you know, they were getting the doors blown off of them by the Texans in week one. And, and he had a phenomenal fourth quarter, brought them all the way back in that game uh, and then led them for what should have been the game winning field goal in overtime. It's just the kicker missed it. And then this past week, you know, obviously the offense isn't really moving, isn't doing a great job, the whole game, they go down there and he throws the game winning touchdown pass with 20 seconds left. So we've seen good moments. We've seen him stay in there uh, even in the face of this pressure, but yeah, I, I would say it's been a little disappointing right now, but it's really hard to get a firm evaluation with just how bad the pressure has been from this offensive line.
4: Yeah, offensive line state is not good across the NFL because you should have heard our guest Marcus Mosher heading into the Raiders game. He sounded just like you talking about how the, the weak link of the Raiders was the O-line, and we're over here like, well, you haven't seen the Titans O-line. That's yes. the Titans weak link. Like, there are so many teams dealing with this issue. It's going to come up again and again throughout the year, but it is a place where you can look at to hopefully try to have you know a matchup advantage of the Titans defensive line against the Colts offensive line, but I think you can say the same thing in the inverse, the Colts defensive line with DeForest Buckner and Quiddy Pay going up against the Titans' struggling offensive line, although they've looked a little bit better, at least against the Raiders, than they did uh, against the Bills and the Giants. Um, but I want to talk about more about this Colts defense. You've credited Gus Bradley and the defense with being so outstanding versus Kansas City. It's interesting because they were so not outstanding the week before against Jacksonville. Right. Do you think this was um, the, you know, it's taken a few weeks for this defense and they're starting to gel a little better. Do you think this was a specific game plan to stop Patrick Mahomes? How do you see this defense coming out to play against the Titans uh, coming up this week?
6: Yeah, I think it's been a combination of things because honestly, if I break down Gus Bradley's defense so far, it's a lot similar to what Matt Matt Eberflus did with the Colts last couple of seasons where the Colts by far and away have the best run defense in football. I mean, their, their run defense right now is phenomenal uh Grover Stewart's playing the best football of his career the reserve linebackers filling in for Shaquille Leonard they have their issues in coverage but they've both been I mean Zaire Franklin and EJ Speed have both been phenomenal in run defense I mean uh Clyde Edward Taylor came into this past game against the Colts leading the NFL or or was near the tops in the NFL in in yards per carry at 7.7 he finished this past game with seven carries for zero yards and and one touchdown but uh Uh seven carries for zero yards they've I think they've held uh like running backs to I think two point six yards per attempt on like 80 carries this year Uh, so they have been really really strong in run defense and I think that just really helped them in this Kansas City game where the Chiefs were really one-dimensional Pat Mahomes was flustered because the Colts were actually getting some pressure uh, and, and it really just slowed down everything the Chiefs wanted to do in offense now the key to kind of beating this defense is get the ball out quick you want to utilize that quick game don't let the pressure kind of affect your your quarterback uh, and really just rely on that passing quick game screens meshes everything underneath and that's what the Jaguars really did where the Chiefs just really couldn't get anything going in the passing game and they tried the run game and it just did nothing so I think I mean I never want to say anything bad about Derrick Henry or the Titans run game because I know that despite the Colts run defense being phenomenal for the last four years Derrick Henry's always kind of been able to find success (laughs) regardless Uh, but I will say if the Titans come out with a game plan where it's going to be run the ball 30 times into this Colts defense I do think they're going to have a lot of struggles because the Colts defense I mean the run game is just phenomenal right now Uh, I do think the way to attack them is just kill them with the screens kill them with underneath kill them with quick slants uh, and you got to have your quarterback be really quick and efficient getting the ball out Uh, and that's exactly what Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars did Right. Uh, and it's not what the Chiefs did this past week with Pat Mahomes.
4: <laughs> hale has been pretty good about getting the ball out quickly this year with you know poor pass protection around him. But I definitely would expect the Titans to try and establish the run all game long and give Henry 30 carries yes. right into the <laughs> strength of the Colts' defense.
6: <laughs> right, right. It's always been fascinating the last couple of years, though, in that Titans-Colts matchup because, like I said, Henry still gets his. He's Derrick Henry. But I do think the Colts, for the most part, have been – pretty decent against them outside of, I think that blowout in 2020, um, the Colts have usually been pretty decent compared to the rest of the league. Uh, the thing that always killed them though, is AJ Brown on the play action passes over the middle, which isn't a thing anymore, but Traylon Burks obviously can kind of be, uh, pretty good as well. So it will be interesting to see how the Titans come out and tack this Colts defense that still has that same strength of that run defense, but the Titans don't have AJ Brown to, you know, make the superhuman play. Right.
5: It's going to be a fascinating uh, game to watch. Zach, we appreciate you so much as always. This really is as must win as must win can get in week four. I'd almost argue for both sides, right? I mean, as, right. you know, the Colts even though they stole that win against Kansas City 1-1-1, they're 0-1-1 in the division, right? And that's never a good right. start to the division. Of course, for the Titans this is their first uh, division game. They're 1-1 in conference play. So really a big game for both teams. Before we let you go, uh, as we tend to do on the music City Audible, if you're able to give some game flow predictions, how you sort of see this thing going, how you see it playing out, and if you feel inclined, maybe even a score prediction at the end of that.
6: (laughs) Yeah, I think this is the battle of really, really evenly matched teams. And I think if you said that before the season, I think people would be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I don't think we would have saw them being the two, two type of teams they are right now going into this matchup uh, where they're kind of struggling. They're kind of trying to find their identity. But uh, I do ultimately think the Colts will pull this out in home at home against the Titans. I think it'll be a really close one. It's, it's going to be a, a really tough battle. Um, but again, I think both these teams have their struggles, but the Colts defense, Uh, really is suited to play against this Titans team without A.J. Brown, especially. Uh, And I think the Colts offense figures out just a little bit on this offensive line, just a little bit to where they could move the ball a little bit. So I think it's going to be an ugly one again. I I mean, I would say if I had to do a score prediction, maybe 23-20 or 23-21 Colts. uh, But I can really see this one going either way. I think these two teams are very, very similarly built, similarly coached. uh, Just a, a lot of similarities between these two teams right now.
4: Yeah, I can't wait to watch the Titans stop the Colts and hold them to, like, a fourth and two. And then yeah. Frank Reich's like, ah, we're always going for it. And it's like, I hate this guy because he's always going for it. And then they always convert it. And it's like, you think... I don't know Lincoln's they always convert it,
6: man. They get, they get <laughs> stuffed quite a bit lately. But, yeah, Frank likes Frank likes to go for it. He's very analytic
5: heavy, which we like. We really like that. Yeah. And you, on that play, they will have Michael Pittman in single coverage against yes. a cornerback the Titans have not yet signed as of this recording.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Raiders went one for 12 on third down, but then they went three for three on fourth down. So that really takes a lot of the, <laughs> the success out of that.
0: Oh, uh, Zach, man.
4: really appreciate your time. Thanks again for coming on and uh, good luck this year.
0: Maybe we'll see you again in a few weeks. Thanks so much for listening. That's going to do it today for our first ever episode of the best of Broadway week four edition. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, let us know. Give us some feedback in the reviews or the comments of these podcast feeds or hit us up on Twitter. Let us know if you enjoyed this show. Hopefully you did. We'll be back each and every Saturday with another edition of The Best of Broadway. And of course, after the Titans play the Colts this Sunday, check out all of our shows during the week. We've got great content for you all throughout the week. All of our flagship shows, as well as the Mike Herndon show, are going to be available as always. Until then, enjoy your weekend we